Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, it's our custom to always make sure that we are Uh, prepared for worship. Scripture teaches throughout the Old Testament and New that the believer is positionally sanctified at the instant of salvation. And yet as we grow in our spiritual life, it's what uh, theologians call experiential or progressive sanctification. There are times when we sin. When we sin, we break fellowship with God, and there must be a recovery or restoration of fellowship. It's a family love breach, as it were, where a child disobeys a parent and there must be a a restoration of of rapport. And Scripture says that this is based on the completed work of Christ on the cross. He's already paid the penalty for our sins, so we don't need to add to that. All we need to do is simply admit or acknowledge our sin to Him, and He is willing to forgive us. He instantly forgives us and cleanses us not only from the sins we confess, but from all unrighteousness. That's grace. It goes far beyond just the letter. We don't just get forgiven for what we confess. We are cleansed from all unrighteousness so that fellowship is instantly restored and our ongoing walk by means of the Holy Spirit uh, resumes that the Holy Spirit can produce spiritual growth in our lives. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, in eternity past, you simultaneously and instantly knew all things. You knew everything that would happen in human history, and you instantly knew of the plan, the perfect plan, that you would instigate that would provide for redemption for man. And your thinking was the thinking that provided the framework, the foundation for all creation. And in your word, you have revealed to us a portion of that thinking so that we can come to know you and come to know your plan and come to know Uh, how to have a uh, deeper relationship with you, which begins at the cross. Fathers, we orient to your authority and orient to your plan. vital part of that is 
worship. So as we continue our study of this important topic this morning, we pray that we might be willing to let our own opinions and ideas be subordinated to the teaching of your word, and that we may come to let our, have our thoughts about worship be shaped and dictated by that which is revealed in your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Worship is one of those doctrines that is genuinely vital to the spiritual life of every believer. Often that has not been so emphasized. On the other hand, you have people who take this concept of worship and they make something of it that is not really biblical. They transform it into something that has to do with their own inner feelings, their own emotional state, and it almost becomes a form of idolatry. That, unfortunately, is the case that we find today in too many aspects of Christianity. It's a failure to properly analyze what God has revealed in His Word, and it's also a failure to understand how the various trends of thought that take place outside of the church in the general culture of any particular civilization uh, has an impact on ideas of, of worship and music and praise within the church. And so by failing to think very deeply, very profoundly, and this has happened throughout the ages of Christianity, the church is too often affected and infected by subtle forms of what the Bible calls worldliness, which really creates a, a uh, contradiction within the worship and the teaching of the church because on the one hand there's a desire to be scripture-based and theocentric, and on the other hand there are methods, methodologies, there are uh, ideas that are brought into the church because it seems to make the church a little less uh, less distinct from the culture around them that maybe unbelievers might feel a little more uh, comfortable with uh, what is going on in the church. And so uh, the message, the method uh, of what goes on in worship is often diluted by a lot of false thinking. So we're taking time, the time as we come to our conclusion of Revelation chapter 5 to understand the significance of worship. And the words for worship are used many times in both the Old and New Testament, but as we saw last time when we come to Revelation, there is a lot said about worship, and we get a picture of what worship is objectively as we see it happening in heaven, in the future. And so from an understanding of what Worship looks like in the presence of God where there is no influence from a human viewpoint or pagan thought or various ideas of emotion and subjective thinking, then we can take those principles and apply them to what, what we do. Our context has been in Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 to 14. I'll just read through those verses to set the uh, context, remind us of why we're here, and then we will continue our study on the doctrine of worship. John is in heaven. He is before the throne of God where he has seen this 
a phenomenal scene of the Lamb of God coming forward to take the, the seven-seal scroll that has been in the hand of God the Father, and he takes the scroll, and he is about to break those seals, and breaking those seals will initiate a series of judgments in human history that will culminate in his coming to the earth to take his rightful place as the uh, king of the earth, the king of Israel, the Davidic king, and to establish his kingdom and throne upon the earth. And as he takes that seven-seal scroll, the angels, the four living creatures, and the 24 elders who represent the uh, raptured, rewarded, church-age believers in heaven break forth in singing praise to the Lamb. And in verse 11 we read, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands singing with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive the power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea, and all things in them I heard singing, the hymn who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept singing, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So what does it mean to worship God Biblically, let's get away from ideas of tradition, ideas of culture, contemporary ideas. We need to investigate what happens in the Scripture. Now, just presuppositionally, before we get started in this, there's a couple of things that have come to my attention as I've thought about this a little more this week. And one of of those is that when we look at the Scripture, while much of it is descriptive of what took place in the Old Testament in terms of worship, it is not merely descriptive. It is prescriptive in a sense of establishing certain patterns and certain parameters. And the reason I use that terminology is because uh, you will hear sometimes people today, especially if they're coming out of an emergent church or um, church growth type of background, they'll talk about the fact that, that, well, all of that that goes on in the Bible is merely descriptive. That means it just tells us what they did. It's not prescriptive at all. In other words, we can invent and come up with our own forms of worship, our own kind of music, whatever appeals and interests our generation and makes them feel as if they're closer to God and can worship God. And uh, it would surprise you the places you will hear that kind of uh, hermeneutic applied to the Scripture. And it's, it's just completely wrong. The Bible it's, it gives descriptions and patterns, and in many cases you don't find prescriptions on things like music and uh, because there's a certain uh, framework of flexibility from culture to culture. But in the patterns that we see in Scripture, parameters are established and boundaries are set, and we have freedom to uh, move around within those particular boundaries. And that's part of what I'm trying to establish as we go through this series is just what are these boundaries? What are these 
principles? What are the parameters to biblical worship, and how does that apply in every every area of worship? Worship isn't just coming together, sitting down uh, under the teaching of God's Word. That is the core of worship, because worship fundamentally focuses our attention on God, as we've seen in these hymns that are sung by the angels and the 24 elders in Revelation 4 and 5. The focus is always on on God, who he is, what he has done, on Christ, who he is, and what he has done. And the second observation is you don't find a focus of worship anywhere in the Bible on the Holy Spirit. Now that impacts a broad segment of contemporary Christianity. And you will, if you just page your way through our hymnal, you will find various hymns that are addressed to the Holy Spirit. But when you look at the scriptures, you never find that because the Holy Spirit is the one whose role it is to uh, energize and empower the worship that is directed to the Father and to the Son. And so the Holy Spirit is never the focal point, even though he is full deity and fully worthy of worship in the scripture, he is not the focus of worship. It is the Father and the Son. So with that, let's just review the first couple of points I made last week, that the key words emphasize service and submission. Two key ideas, service to God, submission to his authority. If you remember those two words, you have the core idea of worship throughout Old and New Testament. The uh, first Old Testament word we have is abad, which in some context means to work. It's a, it's a very broad word. It is a word that is often applied to the service of the priests in the tabernacle and later in the temple as they were serving God by bringing sacrifices and offerings uh, into the temple. We first see the word associated with the work of man in the garden. And there is a sense there in which all of our life, including our work, our vocation, uh, which is the word vocation from the Latin vocare, meaning to call, your vocation was seen by Christians historically as God's calling, his gifting and talenting, not in terms of a spiritual gift, but his gifting and talenting of every individual to perform uh, certain kinds of work. And so the calling of God uh, is on every one of us in terms of our vocation, and we are to use our vocation to serve him, and that is a form of individual uh, worship. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.13 was another passage I mentioned last time, where to fear the Lord and worship Him and serve Him. And then the key word that's translated worship comes from the uh, Hebrew hava. It's a hishtafel form, and it has the idea of uh, subordination, submission to someone who is in a position of honor or authority. And it can be applied to a person, a human being who's in a position of authority, or it is frequently applied to God who is seen as the ruler of the heavens and the earth in his sovereignty. He is the God who created all things, therefore he is worthy of worship. You have this word used in Genesis 22.5 and Genesis 24.26 in the sense of, of Two different senses of worship. For example, in Genesis 22:5, when Abraham is going to take Isaac up to sacrifice him, that is termed 
worship. So we see that element of sacrifice, but behind it is the element of obedience, even though God is asking him to sacrifice physically, literally sacrifice his son. Abraham is going to be submissive to that, and that is worship. Genesis 24:26 and Genesis 24:48, where the servant of Abraham goes to seek a wife for Isaac as he prays to God to lead him to uh, the wife for Isaac, and as he fi- finds her in both of those verses, he bows his head and worships the Lord. And there we see this element of gratitude, that, that a key element in worship in our thinking, our attitude, is that we understand what God has given us and we recognize that all that we have is from Him. And so we are ex- expressing that uh, gratitude, that thankfulness to God in all things. Be- and that is part of authority orientation, orienting to the authority of God and submitting to Him because we recognize that what we have is not the result of our hard work, our labor, our natural talent. Ultimately, it is from God, so it is an aspect of of subordination and submission. In the Greek, the key word that is related to hava is the word proskuneo, which means literally to bow the knee. It's applied in terms of kissing someone in authority. That was an ancient Persian custom uh, to kiss on the uh, cheek, to adore someone. Later, it came to mean to worship or to prostrate oneself before a superior. It's used 59 times in the New Testament, 24 of which are in uh, Revelation. So it's, again, this idea of uh, recognizing God is the one in control. He has the right to tell us how to think and what to think because he is the one who created reality, so he defines it. And when we're not thinking in terms of God's structure of reality, his structure of society, his structure of marriage, and we're thinking outside of that, we cannot worship individually, and we are living in a fantasy world of our own construct. Romans 12.1 uses uh, the word latreia, which is roughly a counterpart to avad in the Old Testament, and it has the idea of serving or worshiping God. It's only used five times in the New Testament in this particular form, And it has, in the other four passages, it is relating to the service of the priest in the Old Testament tabernacle or temple where he is officiating over the sacrifices. And that's the idea in Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, not just your soul. We don't want to get into a... uh, platonic type of dualism or dichotomy, he uses the body because it brings in the whole life, everything that we are, everything that we do. We are to be presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice. Now, a sacrifice, by according to Webster's definition of the term, is simply a willingness to give up something for something of a higher nature. And so when we uh, give up our own desires, our own agenda, and uh, replace that with God's plan, that is part of what it means to be a sacrifice. When we give up our time to study God's Word, to come to Bible class, to be involved with 
that which we should be involved with in order to grow and mature as believers rather than enjoying our favorite television show or just relaxing or being involved in a hobby or work. That is viewed as Scripture as a sacrifice because we are giving up one thing in order to achieve something higher. That doesn't mean it's going to feel like you have given something up, but then we don't base anything at this church on how we feel. So we came to our definition last time as we ended. We just went over the whole thing because I made a lengthy definition. Now I'm going to chop it up into its three components. First sentence, worship means to submit or to subordinate my opinions, preferences, thoughts, philosophy of life, finances, politics, emotion, relationships, attitudes, actions, time, Ephesians 5.17, we're to be redeeming the time, uh, time, priorities to the authority of God's Word. It's the same basic concept we find in 2 Corinthians that we are to be taking every thought captive for Christ. We are capturing strongholds, those strongholds of human viewpoint thinking in every area of our lives. So these things connect together. It's part and parcel of our spiritual life and spiritual growth. It's being willing to submit everything under the authority of God, and that is expressed in His Word. That's why studying His Word is the center of worship. And when we construct uh, church services where you spend 40 or 45 minutes singing and then people become emotionally weary after that much time singing and they can't focus on teaching and if they sing the wrong kind of music in that initial 40 or 45 minutes then it further limits their ability to focus and concentrate and think. And this is why we've moved in, the, in a contemporary Christianity to shorter sermons rather and longer singing. When I was younger and at another church and uh, was coming under some pressure to change the format, add more singing, have shorter sermons, I said, well, if you just want to sing longer, why don't we do this? Why don't we come in and we'll just have one opening song. I'll teach for an hour and then we can sing for an hour. And the response was interesting. Said, well, you know, when you get through preaching, we'll go home. Ah, you get the point. The reason you're there is for the teaching. When that's over with, it's time to go home, not time to sing. You want to sing because you don't really want a lot of teaching. We just want to make sure we're clear on what's going on here. That always endeared me to people. I had an <clears throat> opportunity late, uh, recently. I was sitting with three or four younger pastors. I've had the privilege to, to mentor. We were at a conference in Dallas, and it was late one night, and they had taken me out afterwards to uh, pick my brain. At that time of night, there's not much to pick. But um, these guys all face the same kind of problem in their churches. Younger guys do, and, and even if they're not younger in age, if they just haven't been in the pastorate for very long, it seems people, uh, sheep tend to sense that, and so they're, they, they want to uh, attack and kind of nip at their heels a little bit or uh, whatever, and so they get this, these, these kinds of comments, and, and uh, 
And I'm sitting there, I thought, and I thought out loud, I said, you know, I haven't had anything like that in a long time. I can't remember the last time anybody in my congregation really expressed disapproval of what I said or my philosophy of ministry. And David Rosen looked at me and he said, well, that's because you have gravitas. I thought, hmm. Fifteen years ago, somebody said I was distinguished for the first time, and now I've got gravitas. That just means I'm old and fat. (laughs) So we're to submit or subordinate our opinions, our preferences, our thoughts, philosophy of life, finances, everything to God. Now, a lot of people think, well, I can have my own opinions. But your opinions are based on how you view and interpret the circumstances of the world around you. And they're influenced by your peers, and they're influenced by media and all kinds of things. And they're influenced just by your own personal preferences. But there are absolutes in the world created by God. We need to understand what those what those are. So the key idea is subordination of everything to the authority of God's Word. The next element we add is that thus worship is a complex idea which involves a number of aspects from private prayer to public expressions of thanks, the singing of hymns which reinforce and reflect on God, His person and His works. It also includes the bringing of sacrifices and gifts to personal Christian service. That's Romans 12.1. So we have this idea, a lot of ideas. There's private worship, there's individual worship, there's public worship. Worship involves singing, it involves public prayer, it involves, uh, it can involve just music, it can involve listening to someone else sing because as uh, if you listen to the words, it helps focus our attention upon upon God. And recently I was asked a question by someone who said, well, you know, sometimes the, the music is so great or the uh, organist plays so well, I, I just want to clap. And if you've been to many other churches, you'll find that in the last 20 or 30 years, clapping has become a very common in a lot of churches. And I thought about that because I have made comments in the past that I don't think Clapping is appropriate for worship in church. But I wanted to give a little more of an answer than simply a person, that's something that would come across as a personal preference or because when I grew up, no one ever, ever thought about clapping in church, in almost any kind of church. It was understood that what was uh, being done by the choir, by the organist, by the musicians, was not being done as entertainment. It wasn't being done so that we could appreciate them. It was done as unto the Lord. And it was done to glorify Him. And it was part of worship so that the singing, the words, the music, all of this is designed to help the congregation come from wherever it is we're coming from, whatever the circumstances are in our lives, and to focus our thoughts on who God is and what he has done. And if we have sat here during the offertory and hear a wonderful 
hymn sung as we did this morning, and the choir has just done a magnificent job over the last uh, couple of years as they've developed. They have uh, uh, really improved and continue to improve, and, it's, and the congregation has too, by the way. I'm not going to leave you all out. But if you listen to that, and you listen to those words about how God's eye is on the sparrow, and you think about that and the implications of that for our lives and for eternal security and for God's care for us, then if when they end, everybody starts clapping, you, you realize how that has just broken that concentration and that focus. And it, it interrupts everything. And that's, and it just, it, it, it's grating. And if you're not sensitive to that, then the way you listened, and sometimes we have to learn how to listen to choir, listen to a choir, listen to congregational music, because we come out of such an entertainment-oriented culture that when we hear group singing or we hear a choir singing, our, our way of listening is often more determined by how we listen to a concert or we listen to uh, entertainment than changing that focus to thinking through those words because what this is is an aid to our worship and focus to help us uh, center our thinking on God. It is theocentric and Christocentric. So worship is involves all of these different dimensions. And singing of hymns isn't just because we enjoy them or they make us feel better, they get the endorphins up, and so we feel better about ourselves and therefore better about God, which is what happens with a lot of songs. Now, there's a lot of songs I like to sing that are fun and they're toe-tapping and they're songs that I sang for years uh, around a campfire, at Camp Penile, different kinds of settings that are good songs in those settings. But the setting on Sunday morning is a different setting, and the music that we sing in congregational worship has a different purpose. It is to prepare us to focus on God and to study and concentrate upon His Word. The third element of the definition is that worship can be both individual and corporate. We may sometimes be emotionally stimulated by worship, if we really think about some of the songs that we sing, uh, think about the words of a mighty fortress is our God. We think about words, uh, one of my favorite, even though at a couple of places the words are not the most doctrinally correct. It's, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? What a tremendous comment on how undeserving we are of the grace of God. And we um, hear the words to his eyes on the sparrow. And if we think about it, sometimes we can become quite moved emotionally. The trouble that happens is the next time we come and we hear that, we may be coming from a different uh, frame of reference in our mind, and it doesn't have that same emotional impact. And so we walk out and we say, yeah. I didn't really worship this morning because I didn't have that same emotional feeling. And what happens then is we try to find music and songs that's going to reduplicate that, that feeling that we had. 
that can't be reduplicated. I remember the first time I really came to grips in a fresh way with the grace of God sitting in a seminary lecture on theology proper. And I almost started, just tears started coming down my eyes. I realized how truly undeserving every one of us is to the grace of God. Never since then have I had that kind of reaction. And I shouldn't. It's the, these are things that happen to each of us at different stages in life because of wherever we are in our growing process. But what happens is people tend there's these these experiences seem so rich and so meaningful and so profound that we then idolatry. I, well, we turn them into a form of idolatry, and we elevate them in such a way that we begin to worship the emotion and the feeling and the response as opposed to the doctrine or the content that should be generating that response. So even though worship at times may be, and there is nothing wrong with it being emotionally stimulating, if that is coming from your soul and not being manipulated by the music. Now, it may surprise you, but you can go out on various websites uh, for worship leaders. That's what the Emergent Church, Church Growth Movement now calls song leaders. The pastor is no longer the worship leader, it's the song leader. Study the word isn't worship, that's the message there. You always have to watch these terms. But you read these websites and they talk about what keys to sing songs in, what chord progressions to use, what key changes to use and when in order to produce certain mood changes in the audience. And the average person doesn't know enough about music to realize that when he goes and sits in churches with this kind of music, that he is being manipulated by the very structure of the music, not the words, and he is being emotionally manipulated, and that's why you have to sing for 30 and 40 minutes so that we can have real worship and all, all feel better about ourselves and therefore feel better about Jesus. But that's not what biblical worship is all about. So that's our definition of worship. The central idea here is that worship is submission to God as the sovereign creator and expressing that authority orientation through gratitude, songs which rehearse his person and work, rituals of remembrance like the Lord's table, which we are to do in memory, in remembrance of me, Jesus said, and teaching his word. And then the result of that, as the word produces growth in our lives under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, we serve him in all that we think and all that we do. Service is the outgrowth of a inner soul transformation that comes from the Spirit of God and the Word of God. You never have those two separated from each other. It's always the Spirit of God working with the Word of God, which produces growth in the child of God. But we live in a world today when people come together in all kinds of ideas as to what worship is. Worship is truly one of the most misunderstood concepts that we have in church. And today it is often misrepresented in too many places. 
Some people think that worship is just what you do in church. Just generally, that's what it is. and They don't have any more clear concept than that. Others think that worship is experiencing God. It's a subjective barometer so that you can come to church one Sunday and say, well, I really felt like I worshiped today. And then you come the next Sunday and you say, well, I didn't really feel like I worshiped today. I used to have a guy in my church several years ago. I finally got him out of that habit. It took a lot of teaching. But he, he came out of a charismatic background. And when I first went to that church, he would always come up after church and say, Oh, Pastor, I really, I really worshiped this morning. Well, they always say that in a certain tone of voice. And the next week, he said, well, I didn't feel like I worshiped so much this morning. I said, Well, one day you'll figure out that it doesn't have anything to do with how you feel. Worship is feeling God's presence. I want, you to, I want to emphasize how much we subjectivize this in contemporary Christianity. Or it's restricted. It's singing to God or it's praising God or uh, it's making some sort of offering to God. Uh, some circles, you have the end of the service uh, invitation, let's bring it all forward and lay it on the altar for Jesus kind of thing. And that's considered worship. Or that worship is a form of prayer our worship is love worship is engaging with god worship is serving god worship is devotion to to god or worship is ascribing worth to god these are all definitions i took out of different articles and different books written on worship i mean this isn't just something i sat around my room say hmm what kind of crazy ideas about worship can i come up with this is what you will find from, from most people when they think about worship. In fact, a conversation was overheard by a member of this church not long ago. Somebody had come here for a while and was, is now going somewhere else. And uh, they were telling somebody else about West Houston Bible Church and say, and their comment was, well, you know, the teaching was good, but I just need something different in order to uh, have a more spiritual worship. I thought, well, so we have this inner, this is a classic example. People generate this inner idea, not based on Scripture, of what worship is. And that becomes a form of idolatry because they have to run around until their idea of worship uh, becomes enacted. So we have to get back to what worship is. It's not about how we feel. It's about who God is. And what he has done. Third point in our study of worship is that there are two broad categories of worship. There's corporate worship and there's individual worship. Historically, when we began in Genesis and start working our way through the Bible, the first form of worship that we see is individual worship. There are the sacrifices that Abel brings to to God in Genesis chapter 4, and he has the right kind of worship. Cain has the wrong kind, so his sacrifice is not accepted. Uh, Abel's was a sacrifice of a uh, lamb from the flock, and that was what God had prescribed. And so there's right worship and wrong worship, as we'll see. Uh, Cain's was rejected by God, so you can come with genuine feelings of sincerity and feel warm and good about yourself and what you have brought to God in worship. And if it's not biblical or correct, it's not 
worship. There are objective standards. We see the worship of Noah and his sons as they come off the ark and they offer sacrifices to God in Genesis chapter 9. We see the worship of Abraham as he sacrifices to God at various places and then his worship of God at um, Mount Moriah when he takes uh, Isaac there to sacrifice him. We see mostly individual worship through uh, Genesis. And then when we get into Exodus and the Exodus event, as the Jews are brought out of Egypt, we see our first biblical example of corporate worship. After the Israelites are delivered by God at the Red Sea, then there is the Song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15, which is written and sung by the uh, people of Israel in response to how God has redeemed them. And so we see the focus is theocentric. The focus is on the grace of God in deliverance and in redemption. And we'll look at that as an example in a little bit. But the main idea I want you to understand is that there are these two types of worship. There's corporate and individual. And corporate worship develops gradually and that Old Testament corporate worship gives us a framework for understanding worship today. Some key Old Testament passages related to worship we've looked at already. Genesis 22.5, where uh, Abraham is going to sacrifice Isaac, and that is called worship because it is submission to God's authority. Genesis 24.6, it's related to personal thanksgiving and gratitude to God, as in Genesis 24. Uh, 28. Another passage is Judges 7.15. This has to do with the situation as Gideon is about to attack the Midianites. Remember, Gideon was that brave warrior of God. In Judges chapter 6, we first meet him hiding out in a threshing floor to avoid being attacked by the by the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, O man of valor! Holy Spirit's got a great sardonic sense of humor. And uh, calls him, O man of valor, and says, tells him he's going to deliver Israel through, uh, through Gideon. And Gideon says, well, I'm a nobody. I'm the youngest in my father's house, and he's the youngest in the uh, youngest tribe of, uh, uh, the smallest tribe of Israel. We're nothing. We're nobodies. Why choose me? And God, God tells him that he has chosen him, and in response he says, well, I just want to make sure we got this right, as if God hasn't told him three times. So he says, just to make sure this is right, in other words, I'm going to come up with something that's so difficult that God can't do that I can avoid having to do this. And so that's why he comes out with the fleece operation. It's not to find God's will, it's to avoid God's will. And he says, okay, God, if you really want me to do this, I'll put the fleece outside overnight, and when the dew comes in the morning, uh, the fleece will be uh, dry, and the ground all around it will be wet. And so the next morning, the the, uh, fleece is dry, and the ground is wet, and and of course, that supports his idea. He says, wait wait a minute, wait a minute, no, I... Let's do it one more time. I mean, if you haven't done something like this, then you're just not human. But we're going to do something. We're going to do something else. He says, now it'd be more difficult if the fleece is wet and the ground's dry. So we'll try that one tomorrow. Nobody can do that. So, 
And, of course, the next morning the fleece was, dry, was wet and the ground was dry, and Gideon couldn't avoid uh, God's mandate anymore. So then God began to uh, shape him up, and he started off with an army of about 135, no, about uh, 30,000 to go against 135,000. God says, that's too many. Let's narrow it down. If they really don't want to be here, let them go home. So that narrowed him down to about uh, 10,000. God says, eh, that's still too many. Your odds are 13 to 1 against you. That's too many. Let's uh, narrow it down so we'll have them go through. And as they go through the brook, if they, um, if they take too much time getting a drink of water, then they don't really want to be there. So we'll narrow it down to 300, and then the odds are, you know, will be about 40 or 50 to 1. And those are the kind of odds that God likes. So Gideon has still got this confidence issue, and in uh, verse 15, he goes down with one of his, with his armor bearer to do a little reconnaissance on the Midianites. And as he does that, God in his sovereignty says, God is so good to us. He just knows what, what people of clay we really are, that he knows that Gideon is just not real courageous. So God has this. Midianite unbelieving soldier gives him a dream. And this guy wakes up and he can't figure out his dream, so he tells his, his uh, buddy what his dream is. When he tells his buddy the dream, the buddy interprets it and says, well, what that dream means is that God is going to defeat us. And Gideon hears the telling of the dream in verse 15 and its interpretation, and he worshiped. He went, oh, thank God. He was thankful. His faith in God gets supercharged. So he goes back to the camp of Israel and commands them to fall in and attack the Midianites. So again, we see this concept of worship is individual. In this case, it's private, and it's an expression of gratitude. But in the Old Testament, we also see various illegitimate forms of worship. We're reminded again and again in Scripture, we just can't come to God the way we want to. We don't determine what worship is. It's not based on our feelings. It's not based on our background. It's not based on what makes us feel comfortable or uncomfortable. Worship is determined objectively on the basis of the Word of God. And so in the Old Testament, there's two key examples of illegitimate worship. The one I referred to already is Cain in Genesis 4. He thinks he can determine what would be an acceptable sacrifice to God. And God had already instructed Adam and Eve through the sacrifice of the uh, uh, animals to provide skins for them. That's a verse at the end of Genesis 3 we often uh, skip past too quickly. At the end of Genesis 3... Adam and Eve are standing there unclothed. They have, their, their nakedness has been revealed, exposed by, because of their sin, and they tried to cover it up with fig leaves. And so that's typical of works that we try to solve our problems through our own efforts, our own energies, our own agenda, which is like defining our, what we think worship should, should be. And God said, no, I'm going to provide the perfect covering for you. And he gave a lesson. Now, Genesis 4 doesn't tell us that, but we have, to, we have to understand that's what's going on here in light of later revelation. God clothes them with animal skins. Now, we went through that real fast. 
I don't know how many of you have hunted, but it's not that quick. You go out and you shoot a deer, and then you uh, skin the deer. You have to treat the hide a certain way with certain chemicals and and preservatives. You have to work it a certain way so that it becomes uh, supple and usable to wear. If you just skin the the deer and let the the hide dry, you've just got a stiff board a couple of days later. That's not real comfortable to wear. So I would suggest that God had some instructions for Adam. Adam had never seen an animal butchered before. There hadn't been any death before, remember? Death comes by sin. So God has to give him an anatomy lesson, has to teach him how to properly kill an animal in sacrifice. Then God has to explain some basics of anatomy and uh, dealing with the inward parts, what, you can, what, what was there, how to properly skin the animal, how to treat the hide, all of this, and then to clothe them. This didn't happen in five minutes. There was instruction going on there. Now, what lies behind that instruction is a spiritual lesson about sacrifice. This is, was to be passed on to their children, to be passed on to uh, Cain and Abel. Abel learned the lesson. Cain did not. So he tries to define worship on his own terms, and he is rejected. The second example comes in Leviticus chapter 10, when two of Aaron's sons decide they want to uh, bring their own incense, their own fire, that's why it's called strange fire, which is a strange term to us, but it is uh, the incense that was used to burn the altar of incense in the Holy of Holies. And rather than having the fire that was sanctified by the high priest, they're going to bring their own fire in, and they're operating outside of the chain of command, outside of the authority established by the high priest, who is their father uh, Aaron, and this is truly a sign of rebellion. Now, wait a minute. As soon as I say the word rebellion, what ought to come into your mind? It's the word authority. Now, where have we seen the concept of authority to be so important in the last six months or so in our study on Sunday morning? The angelic conflict. The whole issue in the angelic conflict and Satan's rebellion is authority. Satan rejected God's authority and said, I can, de- I can determine right and wrong for myself. I can determine what's acceptable and non-acceptable for myself. And so this whole issue of authority and authority orientation in business, in the home, in government, in the church, in worship is critical. That's why God makes such an issue out of it all the way through Scripture. When we do not have proper authority orientation, then we are imitating Satan. And we, we do have property authority, authority orientation. We are in obedience to God. And so Nadab and Abihu are in revolt against the authority structures God set up for the priesthood, and they're going to operate on their own terms. After all, they have, they're sincere, and they're genuine, and, and they just, they're, they're going to use all the, all the functions of the tabernacle. They're not going to set up an idol. They're just going to bring, bring their own incense. And that's what so many people have done down through the ages. We want to define just a little twist. We want to put our little spin on what the spiritual life should be and how God should be and what salvation should be and what worship should be.
And so God shows them what he thinks of it, and they are, they are instantly executed for their blasphemous rebellion. Now, corporate worship begins to develop at the Exodus at Mount Sinai. I alluded to that just a minute ago, and we will begin there next time with a look at the first key hymn that we have in Scripture, which is the Song of Moses in uh, Exodus chapter 15. We'll start there uh, next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're so thankful that we have your word to teach us, that in your word you have revealed patterns and prescriptions. You have told us who you are, what you have done. And as we come to understand who we are in light of who you are, then we are moved in gratitude because we understand that we deserve nothing and that you are the God who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, And as human beings in Adam, we stand condemned because of his sin. Yet you have, in your grace, provided a perfect, sufficient salvation. You sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to become a man, to live his life on earth, and to go to the cross to die for us. On the cross, between 12 noon and 3 p.m., you imputed to him every single sin in history. No sin was left out. Every sin was paid for. So that the issue now is not our sins or our failures. The issue is, what do we think about Jesus Christ? John 3.18 makes it so clear that he who does not believe does not have eternal life and is condemned because he has not believed. Not because of sin, for the sin was paid for on the cross. The issue now is faith alone in Christ alone. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've never understood that that's the issue, this is your opportunity to have eternal life. Scripture says that the instant that we believe in Jesus, God imputes to us, he credits to us, he gives to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not that we become experientially righteous, but that we are covered by his righteousness so that on the basis of his righteousness, not ours, we have eternal life. We are declared just, we are given eternal life, we are regenerate, and we can never lose this. This is your opportunity right now, right where you sit, to determine where you will spend eternity. And all that is necessary is to accept the free gift that Jesus Christ offers because he paid the price for your sin. Father, we pray for those who are already saved, that we'd be challenged by what we've learned about worship, that we may understand that our whole life is to be a living sacrifice, an act of worship to you, subordinate to your authority, submitting to you in every area of life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.